0: Hey, y'all. You know, I realized the other day that we've done about 14 episodes or so now of the Leisure Class podcast. And I've sort of just dived in without really giving y'all too much of my my background or my story. And I realized that there's maybe some listeners out there. I'm hoping there are listeners out there who don't actually really know. So I thought I'd, I'd just take some time today and just kind of fill you in on how I got here. I think a lot of folks know me, and I'm kind of known around the world as the other guitar player in Dire Straits. I ended up being part of that band in 1985, 86, when it was the biggest band in the world. Ended up doing 256 sold-out shows in a year in 23 countries, played Live Aid, and I'm the guy in the long red coat on that stage, hanging out singing with Sting on Money for Nothing. But how I got there was not a straight line from picking up my first guitar, to ending up on the stage at Wembley, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, coal mining town. My parents, my dad was a um, insurance adjuster, my mom was a secretary. Um, we moved around a bunch as my dad worked his way up the corporate ladder. I lived. I went to three different high schools in three different states. Ended up in Connecticut, where I went to college for a year and decided during that first year I was pursuing. Um, one of my passions, which is writing, was going to look at being a, um, a writer, a, a lit professor. And my passion and desire for music and, and my dream of becoming a rock star took over. And I quit college, went to music school for two years, and then played around Connecticut in a couple of bands. And I moved to New York. And like so many musicians, you end up having to have a day job. And <clears throat> when I first got there... I worked in a couple of different record stores, ended up working on 48th Street off of Times Square. 48th Street was known as Music Row. On the half block between 7th Avenue and 6th Avenue, Avenue of the Americas, there were about 17 different music stores and repair shops of all different kinds. Some were full line music stores like Manny's and Alex and Sam Ash, and others were used guitars and almost pawn shop like places. A good friend of mine who I would worked at Alex's with for a short time opened up his own shop, and that was Rudy Pensa. And he opened up a shop called Rudy's Music Stop, and it was the only store on the block that was totally focused on guitar gear. Nothing else. Guitar parts, pickups. This was in the early days of of the explosion of different pickup manufacturers, boutique amplifiers, Very cool pedal makers, and nobody was really dealing with that on the block, and Rudy really nailed it. The store became the shop for guitar players who were in New York City. And I ended up managing the place for a bunch of years while I was in town chasing my dream. The shop was really pretty small. Uh, I would say that it was, you know, you could stand in the middle of the store and stretch my arms out and I could pretty much touch both walls. It was long and narrow. Guitars lined both sides of the store. And we had a small area for a few of the amplifier lines that we we didn't carry the major like Fender, Gibson, Marshall, any of that stuff. We really focused on the boutique handcrafted solder sniffer warm tube tone amplifiers and we had a lot of vintage guitars and the vibe was really mellow. A lot of the shops on 48th street were the type of places that if you walked in and asked to play a guitar, you would be asked to show them the money first. I'm not joking. One of my first trips to New York City, while I was still living in Connecticut, walked into Manny's and I was looking at a Strat. And when I asked to play it, the salesman looked me dead in the eye and said, let me see your cash. And I, I mean, I had never encountered anything like that. I had worked in, in guitar and music stores in Connecticut and around a couple of other places when I was growing up and it blew my mind. And you could come into Rudy's and just hang out. It became, it was almost like a club or a cafe. Rudy wanted to put in an espresso machine so that people could come by and have coffee and hang around. And it really was the type of place where so many guitar players in town would just come by almost daily to see what was going on, what what was new, what I might have heard. And I, I kind of really took my job pretty seriously as as the manager and i'm you know my passion for all of this stuff was what was driving me anyhow and i felt it was important for me to be kind of the guitar guru and i was making sure that i was on top of all of the new products and all of the cool stuff it was just rudy and i a lot of times in the shop maybe just sitting around noodling on guitars or talking shit I waited on rock stars and newcomers alike. It was a place that it didn't really matter. And that went a long way to establishing the vibe and the credibility of the shop. During this time, while I was in New York, I was living in two worlds. I worked at Rudy's during the day. And uh, that would be like from, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning until six o'clock at night. And then I would go home, take a nap and then head out to either play a gig or go hang out in the clubs. It was one of those mornings where I had slept on the floor at the store had been out all night that Mark Knopfler walked into the store. Now, for those of you who don't know Mark or his band Dire Straits, This was in 1981. In 78, when the first Straits album came out, it was a massive hit. The song Sultans of Swing was a worldwide smash. And Mark gained the reputation, well-deserved reputation, I gotta add, of being a really unique and amazing guitar player. My mindset at that time was, I'm going to make it and there's not a whole lot of difference between being on one side of the counter at that point and having a record deal. So when I met Mark, I talked to him like a peer. In retrospect, maybe that sounds arrogant, but that's sort of how it was. And we got to talking and we talked about what he was looking for in a guitar As our conversation went on and on, you know, for a while, he just kept hanging out at the shop and he was talking to Rudy's and talking to him and just watching people walk in and out. And he he really just was hanging out. And it come to the end of the day as my, you know, hangover is finally wearing off. He looks at me and he says, you want to go get a drink? (laughs) And he said, you look like you could use one. (laughs) I said, yeah, man, let's go do that. And we ended up going to a little bar not too far from, from Rudy's in Times Square, sitting down and talking and getting to know each other a bit. And that launched a you know three- or four-year friendship. When he was in New York, he would come over to my apartment, my shitty apartment in Hell's Kitchen. We would play guitars. We'd listen to music. I'd go to his fancy-ass brownstone in the village, listen to music, and we would argue about music and... He would try to convince me that Bruce Springsteen was great. And and I would be like, pass, hard pass. And we'd argue about that for a while. And then I would play Miles Davis for him. And he would say, hard pass. And we would argue about that. And over the years, he got to know that, like, I would not hold back my opinions in front of him or for him. I wasn't, you know, playing up to him in any ways. And I think that cemented our friendship in a major way. He used to come and play with my band. If he was in town, he would come and sit in with us, and we'd have a ball playing old rock and roll tunes or blues tunes, whatever, whatever we were doing. And there were a couple of times uh, during the sessions for uh, making movies that he asked me to come to the studio and help dial up some tones, uh, help him, you know, and. So I got to hear some of those those sessions. When the album he left town, when the recording was done, went back to London, getting ready to go do a tour. When the album was done, there was a couple of uh, some copies got sent to the to the shop from the record company. There's a dedication to Rudy's uh, on there, or a thanks to Rudy's on that album. I took my copy home, put it on the turntable. Listened to the first song and thought, wow, this is like a Bruce Springsteen record. Took the needle off, and I didn't listen to it again. I listened to the whole thing once, and I was like, this is not for me. Good luck, Mark. Now, that album didn't do much in the States either, just like the second album. And it blew up everywhere else around the world, and Mark and Dire Straits became a huge, huge band. I was in New York for nine years, chasing the dream. On January 1st, 1983, I collapsed in my apartment. I realized that chasing this dream was almost killing me. They thought I had a stroke. They told me, these doctors, that I was lucky to be alive and lucky to not be totally incapacitated. So I had to face the fact that it was time to quit. So I made the decision to go back to school and chase my first, another dream to be a writer. I was gonna get my MFA and I figured, well, I'll be a lit teacher and write books and that was gonna be my life. I got accepted to Fordham on a full ride For guys going back to school. And it was this sort of college within a college thing. And I was so excited and so stoked. Three days after I got the acceptance letter. My phone rang. And it's Mark. Which was not all that unusual. Because he would call me from all over the world at odd times. Just to talk. Getting the call itself wasn't unusual. But the conversation was very unusual. He says, good morning. Ask me what I'm doing. <laughs> I said, I'm trying to sleep, but I got to get up for work. So what's happening, man? How you doing? And there was a pause. I could hear him smoking a cigarette. Mark, Mark is a, an intense cigarette smoker. So there'd be this big <laughs> draw. And he said, well, I've had to make some changes down here the other guitar players leaving the band. And I said, Oh wow. That's, that's a drag, but I know that you, you know, that hasn't been working for you for, for a little bit. And he said, yeah. So, um, I'm wondering if, if you would like to come down and, uh, finish the album and do the tour with us. And I, (laughs) I woke up then (laughs) for sure. And I remember actually taking the phone. It was a house phone, Right. Um, and tapping it on the floor, my mattress in my apartment was on the floor. So I just reached over and tapped it on the flo- floor, like, I'm sorry. What did I just hear? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I- I'm serious. And he said, uh, you know, I think it, I think it'd be a good thing for you to do and come down and, uh, we'll go from there. He said, we're planning on touring for, for about a year. And I, I was just speechless. I said, "Are you kidding me?" And he he said, "No, no, you can. It's, this is for real. You're going to get a call from from the manager Ed, who I knew, and uh, you can tell your parents." <laughs> that was his <laughs> that was his remark, you know, to try to drive it home that yeah, this is for real. You can tell your parents. Mark had been to my parents' house for uh, a couple of visits actually over the years. So this is like mid December, and I said, "Well, Mark, I." I can't I can't leave Rudy's, the guitar shop. I said it's the Christmas, it's like the busiest time of the year. I can't leave. And he started to laugh and he said, "No, we're going to take a break over the Christmas holiday and then we'll come back down and I've already talked to Rudy." I was like, "What? Rudy Rudy knows about this before I do?" And he said he said, "Yeah, well, you know, I had to had to talk to him about it." Of course. He was good friends with Rudy by this time. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And I'll, he said, yeah, I'll, t- I'll talk to you later. I'll see you in, in a few days. So I hung up the phone and I, and I realized I had given up on that dream. I had made a decision to change my life and go in a completely different direction. And now I was faced with this decision, you know, chase the dream or, or go the more sensible route. It didn't take me long to make that decision. <laughs> No way I was going to turn it down after waiting and trying and banging my head against the wall for so long. I got up, got dressed, made some coffee, and walked over to the store. And Rudy was there. He had gotten there before me, oddly. He was jumping up and down and cheering me and clapping me on the back, saying, this is incredible, it's incredible. And I was laughing and saying it was incredible, incredible. (laughs) Friends started finding out about it the word got around town really quickly worked through the holidays January 1st I'm sitting on a plane for the first time in my life in first class I'm on the aisle seat Mark's on the window seat on the aisle across from me is Neil Dorfman who's the producer and uh, engineer on the project and on the seat next to him are the boxes of the digital master tapes for the entire recording session And they're strapped in with their own seatbelt on their own seat. And I was looking at it and I was laughing to myself and I was thinking, you know, man, I used to watch, see photos of the Allman Brothers in Rolling Stone magazine or whatever magazine I happened to come across with them in it. And there would be pictures of them with their Les Pauls, you know, strapped into their own seat on an airlines. And I thought, man, this is rock and roll. I'm actually, (laughs) this is unbelievable. I mean, it was truly like The Wizard of Oz or an alien abduction. I mean, I stepped literally from behind the counter at a guitar shop to being in what was just about to become the biggest band in the world. That sort of surreal dream followed me to Montserrat, where the recording studio was. First day, I'm there. I'm sitting behind the desk and I'm listening to some playbacks some things and it's just Mark and me and Neil. Those two got up and left the room and I'm sitting there just waiting for him to come back. And I look up and there's this elderly white haired, tall gentleman standing in front of the desk and he reaches over and he reaches over to shake my hand. And he says, hello, I'm George. It was George Martin, the Beatles producer. And i just, I was speechless. It was like, I'm actually in the presence of somebody who shaped everything about pop music and ignited the fire and started the dream for me. I mean, it could have only been better had it been one of the Beatles. In the course of the few months that we were there, Neil Young wandered by one day. He was out sailing his sailboat through the Caribbean and stopped by just to check out the studio. He wandered in and then sting came sting was vacationing there with his, with his family. The police had recorded it air a couple years before done a bunch of, uh, I think maybe two albums there and comes to dinner, hangs out. Oh, we had a private chef in a private dining room attached to the studio so, you know, the rock and roll shit is just like rock star stuff is happening. And Mark says, hey, I think it'd be cool for you to sing on, on one of the tunes that we're working on. And Sting kind of looks at him and is like, huh, okay. We go downstairs to the studio after dinner. And I'm sitting behind the desk. I'm on the far end of the recording desk. Sting is sitting next to me, Mark is sitting next to him, and Neil Dorfman, the uh, producer-engineer, is sitting on the other side. So it's just the four of us in the studio at that point, as far as I remember. And Mark plays Money for Nothing. And Sting's listening to it, you know, it sounded pretty good. And Sting goes, well, you know, what would you like me to do on this? And Mark sings, he said, I, I'd really like you to sing at the beginning of this, I want my, I want my MTV. Now, I hadn't heard about that that part before. We had been recording for a couple of weeks by that point. And when he sang it, I recognized it immediately as the the melody from Don't Stand So, Don't Stand So Close To Me. And when Sting heard it, His head snapped around to look at me and he said, is he serious? (laughs) And I said, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, man, it'll be fun. Go do it. So, you know, he didn't think twice about it at that point. He just got up, walked into the vocal booth, put his headphones on. The track started to play. He sang it and all the barking dog stuff. And he just like riffed and. What you hear is what he did. I, it was one take. And we were all laughing and, you know, having a good time about it. Well, I was there for three months. Finished the recording there. We were going back to uh, New York City to wrap up some stuff and, and finish the recording. And we were going to start rehearsing for the tour. The tour was supposed to start in April. Hanging around in the studio, Mark's doing his guitar overdubs at this point, his solos. We're rehearsing in another studio, starting to learn the tunes and work out parts and all that for what, what the tour was going to be. And at the point, the tour was going to be roughly 150 dates when I signed the contract. When the album came out and just rocketed up the charts, that got extended to 256 shows in 23 countries. In 365 days. That's what that tour was about. The thing that's craziest about this for me was when we flew from New York, we were going to London. When we got off the plane in London, and there's just tons of photographers and paparazzi. And they're just banging photos away. And they got the back of my head because I kept turning around going, who the fuck are they taking pictures of? I mean, I had no idea how big Dire Straits was in the rest of the world. The United States had kind of forgotten about them, really. I mean, we started playing to crowds, 30, 40, 50,000 people outdoors, bull rings in Spain, soccer stadiums, and it culminated at Live Aid. Thank you very much. We're going to take you back to Wembley Stadium in London to take our next great act, one of the great great outs of Great Britain. Dire great... Straits. Nobody knew what it was and how big it was or what the idea behind it. I mean, just it had been explained so briefly and we were all like, okay, another gig. Great. Okay. (laughs) And the next thing I know, I'm playing in front of 72,000 people, a worldwide broadcast that the numbers say it was in front of a billion people and... (laughs) I am like living my dream in the most spectacular way at Live Aid, which was this huge charity event. For anybody who doesn't know, it was a huge charity event that was organized by Bob Geldof and a few other people. And it was a really big deal that we were unaware of because it was in the days before cell phones and a lot of TV and we were on the road traveling. We walk out of the backstage area and I'm standing behind the stage and I'm looking at this crowd and I'm looking at the television cameras and it's people as far as I can see. And I'm the last one in line as the band is lined up to go on and Sting comes up and stands beside me. My old buddy Sting. And he leans over to me and he goes, are you scared? (laughs) I thought about it for a second. I turned around and looked at him. I said, you know, man, I've been fortunate. I I don't get stage fright. I'm not afraid of this. I just want to do it. I've waited my entire life for something like this. And he looked at me and he said, Well, I'm kind of scared. I said, Shit, man. You know, we'll have fun. Just come and do it. And we get the signal to go on. We start playing. Sting's singing his his part. I won my... (laughs) It was a great time. We did our set, walked across the parking lots with our instruments, went back and did a show that night at Wembley Arena to another sold out crowd. I didn't get to see Queen. I didn't get to see any of the highlights of Live Aid. And by the time I got back to my hotel room in London and turned it on, it was just the tail end of it happening in Philadelphia. It's July 6th, I believe, and I'm sitting after the show at Wembley Arena, after having done Live Aid, I'm sitting on my bed in my hotel room watching the end of Live Aid. Watching on TV these huge crowds that I had just played in front of. This is six months after I had given up on my dream. After I had made the decision that I was no longer going to chase being a rock star. And change the direction of my life. And I was living that dream in a very, very big way. I don't know exactly what the lesson might be in this. I think we all have to come to terms with when to let go of dreams, of maybe people, ideas. I was very, very, very lucky. And I'm very grateful that Mark gave me the opportunity to do that and be part of making my dream come true. I was a patron saint of guitar shop workers for years because I fueled the dream that we all shared, which was I'm working in this guitar shop, paying my rent, doing what I can while I chase the dream. And it happened. It happened. But sometimes you have to let go to be open to getting what you want. Uh, that was a lesson I had to learn. So I'll tell you about that the next episode. I'm your host, Jack Sonny. Thanks for listening to The Leisure Class, brought to you by Newsweek. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.